What's going on, Kat? Hi, how are you, Kirko? Yeah, I was just adding the topics. I always check if there's maybe new, new like um, names for stuff that is more accurate, like germs or microbes. But there's not. <laughs> so I'll do this. Hi, Paul. How are you? It worked. So to unmute is the button all the way on the bottom right hand. There's, there's a little microphone symbol. If you press on that, you unmute and then we can hear you. If you can hear us. I hope you can hear us. Okay. Can you hear me? Ah, there. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I was trying to do it on my desktop, but that was clearly a, a mistake. So thanks for helping me out. Oh yeah. Yeah. The desktop version, I, I really don't like it. And since it's not the screen share, uh, I prefer, um, the phone because I can walk around. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good at sitting a long time. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, yeah, I'll, um, so as far as I know, I'll just post the, I'll post a paper, uh, yeah. for people to, um, to like check it out. So I shared your, well, for now I might share, since we are not starting, we have a few minutes, I'll share your lab website because I think it's very interesting for people that want to know more and read Great. about different types of research you do. Great. So it's up um, on the link and we have a bunch of minutes. We have like around six minutes. So uh, in the meantime, I'll share on Twitter and so on that we're about to start. So you have a few minutes to relax. So. <laughs> okay. And, and then um, how does it work? Is it more of a, a Q&A or, or do you want me to talk for a certain amount of time? Yeah. So um, so on top of the hour, I'll introduce you a little bit. Like I'll give a short summary of like, you know, where you went to school and things. So people know a little bit about you Okay. because this is a public room. So, um, you know, anyone that's currently on Clubhouse or sees it on Twitter can just join. Right. Um, so, and, um, and then we usually ask like a couple, a few interview questions. This is more like general public type of questions. Um, like how did you choose science as a career, like type of question, if that's okay. Yeah. But you like, was it maybe a teacher or a book or you always had the dream of like, whatever the answer is, is interesting, I think. And then how you kind of chose this type of, um, you know, research area, and then also if there's kind of a background story about this specific, like about this project that we are talking today. But in, if you would like, you can also talk more in the beginning, more general about yeah. the research you do in general, and then kind of go 
into a little bit of the paper. Yeah, and then usually after those type of more general questions, people give like an overview of their research and then also a little bit about the paper and then people ask questions. That's how it usually okay. goes. So, okay, so you'll prompt me a little bit and then I'll talk. Is that, that the basic format? Yeah, exactly. But if you would like okay. then to have a part where you more talk, like, like a general audience and go into the paper a little bit in between. I think, yeah, if you would like to do that for people that don't know your research at all. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. First I'll do all that. Right. The general okay. part. Yeah. Great. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for doing this and for joining clubhouse and so on. Um, yeah. Thanks really for the invitation. It. I'll hope you'll enjoy it. I'm sure. <laughs> Don't get addicted to this. Like <laughs> <laughs> it was easy during um, COVID. during uh, COVID to get when you're yeah. stuck. That's how kind of this app I think got big for a while. I bet. And then, yeah, so I think now I don't know how how is. Kiko, do you and meet Kiko? Uh, by the way, uh, he is hi. here, one of our members, and Victoria is here. So, hi, Victoria. She will ask the interview. She is usually the interview Hello. person. <laughs> Thank Hello. you. Good morning, Katarina, Kiko, Paul. Nice to see all of you. Good to meet you. Yeah, I was just telling Paul about. Um, not too much, but Clubhouse in general. Like when it was COVID times, it could get really addictive. <laughs> but you know, mm. hours, hours, the yeah. entire day. I bet. Running from one room to the next. <laughs> really, it felt like that. It felt like a big, it felt either like being in college or at summer camp sometimes where you're just running from group group to group or or a really great conference that's awesome and still is now maybe we've learned some self-control though right there you go <laughs> maybe Yeah, the, the unique thing, I think, is that our, like, members that come here um, all the time are really around the world. Like, I don't think I would have met, like, researchers and so oh, yeah, from yeah, so true. many different countries and had conversations with them. And then also from different fields, right? Usually when the, we go to conferences, it's about, we talk more or less about the same we are doing. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Hi, everyone. We will start in one minute already. Past, past. We had stuff to cover. Uh, please feel free to share the room with. I have. Hi, Denise. How are you? Meet Paul. Hello. Pleasure to meet you, Paul. Hi, Katarina. Hi, everyone. Really excited for the talk today. Hi, Denise. Good to see you. 
Okay, sorry everyone. <laughs> I was just sharing everywhere that we are starting. And I guess people will still um, come in, but let's start with introduction and then we'll go from there. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to you, Paul. Paul. And as I said, before we start, let me give um, a short introduction so people get to know you um, a little bit or the research um, you do. Um, so, um, Professor Paul Hergenbote was born uh, was born in Akron, Ohio, and he attended the University of Notre Dame, um, where he did his bachelor in chemistry. And then he did uh, some um, graduate, uh, he did graduate research at the University of Texas at Austin in uh, Professor Stephen Martin's lab, um, where he worked on uh, discovering the catalytic mechanism of phospholipase C. And he completed a total synthesis of erythromycin B and uh, he received his PhD in chemistry um, doing that. And uh, then he moved on um, where, uh, as a postdoctoral fellow to Harvard University um, at the American Cancer Society, where he worked in the lab of Professor Stuart uh, Schreiber um, in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology. There, at Harvard, he was involved in the development of small molecule microarrays as a platform for high throughput compound screening, um, which is really useful, <laughs> as I can say. And um, then he established his own lab uh, in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2001. And then he was uh, promoted to associate professor uh, with tenure in 2006 to full professor in 2010. And then he was named 2013 as the Kenneth um, L. Reinhardt Endowed Chair in, in Natural Products Chemistry. And he's also the co-founder um, and chief scientific officer of Vanquished Oncology. And he developed um, uh, anti-cancer compound there um, uh, that was discovered in his lab, um, the PSE one and um, it actually completed like the first uh, phase 1b2 clinical trials started in February 2021 and uh, in trial uh, patients. Um, and he did many more uh, really amazing um, research and developments that will help us humans, um, which he will for sure talk about um, here um, during his talk. So, um, and he won um, many different awards. So it's such an honor having you here. I could go on and on talking about your achievements. <laughs> um, so, but, um, I want to uh, welcome you and give Victoria the opportunity to ask you a few interview questions. Thank you. Sure, great. 
Thanks for having me. Victoria? Oh. Hi, sorry. Yeah, I was navigating back to my screen because I'm trying to bring Dr. Shaw up, but I, I don't have that option for some reason on my... Oh, thank you. When I I'm quit. doing it. Don't, don't. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Shaw. All right. Oh, good. All right. Now the party can start. Dr. Shaw has arrived. <laughs> okay. So, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Katarina. And welcome, Paul. Science Society is so happy to have you here. And I, um, yeah, we really look forward to hearing about your research. And in addition to just hearing maybe a bit about you. And so somewhere along our lives, we develop affinities and interests. And so perhaps you can tell us about when you first noticed that you had a particular interest in science. And, and it doesn't need to be as an adult. It, it could be something, you know, in, in early play or something that somebody shared with you that, you know, that just kind of got you started in, in, um, in feeling interested in science? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. I mean, I, I think really for me, it wasn't probably until college. I mean, I'd always kind of been interested in, in science and, and math to the extent that any, any teenagers are interested in such things. But um, I started out college as an engineer and I really wasn't very good at it. I didn't like the classes and I wasn't, wasn't good at them either. And uh, as part of those classes though, I took organic chemistry, which most people don't like. And, and I really, I did like it. And so I, I switched my major to, to chemistry and that's, uh, that's kind of been a, a, big, um, a big decision for me. That's amazing. So it's kind of serendipitous and that, that that worked out for you that way. And yeah. Yeah. I think I, you know, I tell my own students and my, my kids, it's, it's good to take classes where, that you don't know anything about, right? I mean, I never <laughs> heard of, really didn't know anything about organic chemistry except for the reputation. But I think once I, I took it and I realized as a, as a chemist, you can make things no one else has ever made, right? You can make totally new compositions of matter and hopefully can aim those compounds towards really important uh, biomedical problems that that really fascinated me. Yeah, well, grateful that that you had that that experience. And, um, and it is interesting. I mean, and it is, I think, I don't know, maybe if the method of teaching were different, or people had a longer time to incorporate all the information, then OCHEM would have a wider reach because it is fascinating and you know and it's 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 all volatile so that's exciting just right there and what you said <laughs> about synthesizing new compounds what power yeah so exactly. yeah it's great um yeah and that's yeah and, and you remembered that so maybe you can bring us from that that point up to where we're at in your current research some events along the way yeah I mean, once I made that switch of my major and then, you know, I, I was fortunate at the University of Notre Dame to be able to take uh, graduate classes when I was a, a senior undergrad. And that was also very transformative and gave me a, a peek on, you know, how much more there is to learn. Sometimes we think as, as students that uh, undergrad degree is really uh, the pinnacle, but then you realize that there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff that they haven't even told you about that's out there, and so the ability to take those classes was was great and uh, turned me on kind of to the idea of 
going forward and getting a PhD. And uh, from there, it was trying to acquire these skills. I mean, to a certain extent, um, science is a, a craft, right, and a, a trade, and you, you have to learn. There's, there's physical manipulations and techniques that one has to become proficient at, and that's just, you know, graduate school is an amazing time for that, to, to learn from practitioners and, um, and kind of have the, the, f the freedom over the course of five years to explore a bunch of different techniques, but then really become an expert. And then uh, my time at the, as postdoc also equally transformative, learning how to then aim those skills at really important problems. And so when I set up my own lab here about 20 years ago at the University of Illinois, I wanted to um, bring the, the power of, of making new compounds that organic chemists can have and do have to uh, what I think are the, the really some of the most important biomedical problems, so um, drug-resistant bacteria, which we'll talk about today, but also uh, terminal cancers. Those are the two areas that we've spent the most time on. Right, yeah, thank you. Well, at this point then, please begin um, your talk, and we're here to moderate and bring up guests who may have questions and also share questions that are placed in the room chat. And so you can either have a Q&A following your talk or have questions drive your talk either way. And so I pass the mic to you, and thank you so much. And, okay. and yes, science is a craft and an art, and couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you, and, and I think you know, I'll plan to talk for um, 15 or 20 minutes, but if, if there's things along the way, questions that you see that, that people have, uh, feel free to break in, no problem. And, and then, of course, we can talk more about everything at the end. So the, I, I was invited to this based on uh, a recent article of ours on a, a new compound that we discovered that we call fabamycin, and it's a, a, a new antibiotic. And so I'll just start a little bit with the kind of the motivation for this and then um, our discoveries along the way that then led to, to this um, event. So our, our real motivation here is on what are called gram-negative uh, bacterial infections. And these are different from other infections, say staph infections, based on the type of bacteria. So there's gram-positive bacteria or gram-negative bacteria, and they're named so because they take up a, a certain type of stain. But kind of operationally, the difference is that gram-negative bacteria have a, an additional outer membrane uh, on them, and this makes them very, very impermeable to antibiotics. And as a result, uh, basically, our, our, our antibiotics that are really good for gram-positive infections and are widely used um, have typically have no activity against gram-negative bacteria. And in fact, it's been 50 years since a new class of antibiotics was uh, FDA-approved for treating gram-negative pathogens. And, you know, I think everybody recognizes that bacteria become resistant very, very quickly. And so 50 years is actually quite a long time. And the net effect of this is that uh, a, a lot of the antibiotics that we use to treat gram-negative infections um, don't work, in, in especially in certain places and certain infections where we've gone back to antibiotics of last resort that are actually highly toxic. And so there's a real recognition of this problem that 
we need more gram-negative uh, antibiotics, but it, it had just been really hard to discover such compounds. And there's you know, a lot of blood in the water from the pharmaceutical industry, and they've, they've been great in publishing their negative uh, results, which doesn't always happen. And so uh, GlaxoSmithKline and AstraZeneca especially have, have published how they've, they've screened millions of compounds, say three million compounds, uh, looking for antibiotics against gram-negative pat pathogens and have come up with zero, zero compounds, so over three million. So really, um, and these are by experts in the field and, and big teams of people that are really good at this. So puts into sharp focus how challenging this problem is. So a number of years ago, about um, uh, probably 10 years ago now, um, we started a program here at the University of Illinois in my lab trying to just understand what types of compounds might get into gram-negative bacteria, not even talking about antibiotics, just like asking the question, hey, can, can organic compounds at all even get through this outer membrane and accumulate in these pathogens, recognizing that this is the, the first step in, in this process of killing the bacteria. And so I, I give a ton of credit to my student at the time, uh, Michelle Richter, uh, who took on this project, very, very challenging project. And I think, you know, sh we basically, we took a, what we called an unbiased approach where we just assessed compounds and just asked the question, do they get in or not? And I think the first 100 or so she tested, maybe one of them got in. And I was really excited about that one, but she was like, well, it's going to be tough to make heads or tails of this data if, if, if we don't have uh, many compounds that get in. So she uh, persisted and, and persevered through this, and we ended up you know, with a, a good uh, collection of, of compounds that both did get into these gram-negative bacteria and also did not. And so we, we used that data set, and, and, and we used machine learning and computational analysis uh, to really tell us the chemical features that compounds need to possess to get through this uh, outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria and accumulate in the cell. And, and, um, and so that was our, our first discovery in, in 2017. We call these the entry rules, and they, they give medicinal chemists and, and microbiologists kind of guidelines for how to build uh, uh, an antibiotic that will actually get into gram-negative bacteria. And so we have been working um, since that time to apply those entry rules, apply those guidelines to, um, to develop new antibiotics. And so this, this paper uh, that came out this summer is um, our, our use of those entry rules to develop a novel antibiotic called fabamycin. So um, in this case, we started with a compound that um, inhibits an enzyme in fatty acid biosynthesis. So this is a, a really um, a new type of target. Most antibiotics out there are ones that, uh, like penicillin, operate on the cell wall, or there's, there's macrolides that prevent protein synthesis, and there's uh, fluoroquinolones that uh, disrupt DNA replication. But there's really not two, those are the kind of the dominant mechanisms. And so this target, inhibition of fatty acid biosynthesis, um, had been reported by others as a really promising uh, target. There was, there's a drug in, in phase two clinical trials, an antibiotic that hits this target, very effective against uh, staph, but it had no activity uh, against 
uh, gram-negative bacteria. And so we thought this was a perfect uh, opportunity to apply the entry rules where we could take that, that drug that has kind of this staph-only or gram-positive-only activity and modify it using the entry rules and create new versions um, that would now still inhibit um, this fatty acid biosynthesis, but now also uh, get in uh, to gram-negative bacteria and, and kill those cells. And so this has been just a, a really remarkable collaboration with um, colleagues of ours at the, the Broad Institute in uh, Boston and, and also uh, Walter Reed um, and also the NIAID and, and bringing the powers of all those places to bear on this really important problem. And so uh, in our manuscript, which I think has been put on the, the Clubhouse site, uh, we talk about how we constructed a handful of, of compounds, uh, 10 or 11 compounds, um, follow, that follow the entry rules that we thought might be candidates as a, a new antibiotic. And through the, the testing of those compounds, we discovered um, this novel drug, favamycin. Uh, this is a compound that, you know, it has, um, we show to have activity against gram-negative bacteria, including hundreds of clinical isolates that, that Walter Reed was able to assess for us. And I think one of the, the really interesting things about this, this compound and this target is the selectivity that this drug has for pathogenic bacteria versus um, what would be called kind of a good or commensal bacteria. That there's an increasing recognition that our current antibiotic arsenal is really a, a kind of a carpet bombing of our of our gut microbiome. So we have um, our my, our gut is teeming with different types of bacteria. Uh, we're kind of in this symbiotic relationship with, and in general, those bacteria are, are great for us. They they help us in many many ways, um, uh, from everything from digesting food to fighting off infection, uh, and and the immune system and and everything in between. And so. It's, it's now pretty well accepted that when you take most all antibiotics, um, especially broad-spectrum antibiotics, you're wiping out a huge um, uh, percentage of this gut microbiome. And what happens then is bacteria that are typically kept at bay can then flourish in the, in the absence of these commensal or good bacteria. And this can lead to all sorts of problems, and uh, including uh, infections with Clostridium difficile, uh, C. diff, uh, which can be lethal and very challenging to treat. And this is why fecal transplants have, have become uh, kind of a, an accepted means of treatment, where you're literally trying to transplant in that um, microbiota. And so the vision with this, these kind of next generation of antibiotics is that wouldn't it be great if we had drugs that just killed the pathogenic bacteria, and, um, and specifically. And of course, that's a big challenge because bacteria have common ancestors and a lot of their machinery is very similar between pathogenic and, and these so-called commensal or good gut bacteria. But the, this particular fatty acid biosynthesis target presents a, an interesting opportunity because in certain pathogenic bacteria like uh, E. coli and uh, Klebsiella pneumoniae and Acetobacter uh, bomani, the, the enzyme that is critical to this fatty acid biosynthesis is actually quite different than the version that is in the, the commensal organisms. And so 
so the, the, when we assessed uh, this compound against uh, pathogenic bacteria, uh, fabamycin is quite potent against these bacteria, but when we assess it against commensal bacteria, it actually has little or no effect. And so this is super exciting, and this is something that we're continuing to investigate. Um, really, the, the, the ultimate vision would be a, a gut microbiome-sparing antibiotic and, and kind of a, a targeted therapy almost for uh, that kills the pathogenic bacteria, but not the commensal good bacteria. So that was a key part of, of the logic and, and of this discovery. Um, we then kind of moving forward in, in the characterization of this compound, uh, fabomycin, is the... Um, is an assessment of its of the ability of bacteria to become resistant to it, and and this is part of any sort of drug discovery uh, platform and process for antibiotic development. We know that bacteria have a, the numbers on us, right? There's there's billions of, of them in in a flask, uh, and they can um, have mutations that enable them to resist most all antibiotics. And in, in fact, in most cases, it's inevitable. And so one needs to be smart about how you, one doses antibiotics and, and where you kill all the bacteria and don't, don't leave certain ones uh, around that will um, be resistant. And so one of the, the things that we do is assess the, the propensity or the, the ability for bacteria to become resistant to antibiotics. And certain antibiotics is very easy for them to become resistant to. And this can be, as you can imagine, a big problem in the clinic. And those compounds typically either don't become drugs or are used in combination with other drugs. And there's other ones, and, and fabamycin is this, in this category, where it's relatively hard for them to become resistant. And this is due to the, the precise means um, by which the, the drug, fabamycin, interacts with its, um, this target in the fatty acid biosynthesis pathway. So that was another, I think, really important discovery was that you know, the frequency of resistance is really quite low for this drug. So there's, with these kind of, um, uh, these are in vitro experiments just in, in, with bacteria in culture. And then we move to uh, assessment of the, the, the ability of the compound to um, actually rescue animals from infection. And, and so these are all kind of as a prelude, hopefully, to what ultimately will be a human clinical trial. Um, there's, there's really no other good surrogates. The, the way drugs are developed and advanced is uh, one typically looks at um, analogous studies in, in laboratory mice as a key workhorse. Uh, and uses that as a, a triage or a way to advance the, the proper compounds. So compounds that have efficacy in those animal experiments are moved forward. With antibiotics, it's actually a pretty good situation in that mice can become infected with the same exact bacteria that we do, so um, that we become infected with. So um, we can run those experiments as uh, simulating a human infection uh, either pneumonia or uh, a sepsis or a UTI, uh, and then treat with our novel compound. So in this case, uh, we treated mice with um, fabamycin and, and showed um, reduced bacterial burden in the lung, and then um, also did a, a, a UTI model, urinary tract infection, which is uh, a quite challenging uh, model and also one where um, uh, humans get these infections uh, pretty frequently, 
and they're typically gram-negative infections, and so it's a great proving ground for, for new antibiotics. And so again, um, we infect the mice and then uh, treat with our compound and, and look for reduction in bacterial burden relative to controls and relative to kind of standard of care drugs. And so um, in all those experiments, uh, fabamycin looks uh, quite promising. So um, the, the, the development challenge for antibiotics is significant just because um, all sorts of, of really interesting reasons are scientific ones in that um, there are antibiotics that uh, physicians are, are comfortable with. Uh, when, when someone is resistant to an infection, they need a treatment, you know, ASAP, basically. Uh, unlike oncology, where you might have a, a kind of a, a oddball cancer and, and everyone can travel to a certain site, to the Mayo Clinic or the Moffitt Cancer Center, to be treated because it's not acute, meaning in the hours or days time frame. With, with um, infections, it is actually acute, and so it's just harder to run those clinical trials because patients are kind of all over the country. Then there's also the economics for how, um, how uh, they're paid for, and we've all become very used to uh, paying uh, very little or, or nothing for antibiotics. So there's uh, always challenge challenges, but um, uh, we're hopeful that we can continue to move forward, and I think now... Um, uh, companies and the government uh, uh, and um, foundations are all aligned in their vision and their goals. And so uh, I think there's reason to hope that there'll be more antibiotics coming through the pipeline in the next uh, several years. So I'll stop there and, and take any questions. Yeah, thank you so much for um, sharing um, this with us. And um, yeah, if anyone has questions, please flash your microphone um, to um, and let me also and please also share in the room chat if you don't want to you don't want to speak. Um, and um, yeah, welcome, Lady Rocket and um, yeah, Dr. Shah, Kiku, Denise, Bryce, um, Joyce. Yeah, go ahead. I am Lady Rocket, how are you? Yes, I am doing very well. Uh, thank you for, as always, introducing uh, the phenomenal speakers who do such a meaningful research and progress for our humanity. I, my question to Dr. Paul, and first of all, thank you and congratulations on your uh, accomplishments and what it can mean uh, to us humans on Earth, but my question has to do also with um, space application. As a, being a space entrepreneur and innovator, I am curious um, and being aware of NASA um, and private interest in finding a way to contain bacterial I can't hear you, Lady Rocket. Of I don't know bacterial I... infections. Lady Rocket, yes. excuse me. We didn't hear you for about the last 30 seconds. Okay. Maybe you could rewind a bit. And welcome. Glad to see yes, you. Yes, thank you. It's always a pleasure to, to see and be part of your 
of your room. Uh, my question, I am a space investor and entrepreneur, so allow me to diverge a little bit toward the application of your significant research to specificity of space applications, where one of the critical path items includes containment of diverse bacterial infections possibility. Uh, let it be, um, uh, we are getting ready to return to the moon for the extended stay as a part of Artemis project. Uh, so, uh, if you can comment on that. And the second uh, question is, how do you look, uh, where would you like to seek um, commercial uh, funding uh, for, for, your, for your research? Uh, because uh, my platform is organizing funding for the, for the research relevant to space that traditionally is not easily supported, let's say, by venture capital or traditional investment sources. So number one, space application, and two, sources of funding for the follow-up that you would like to see. Thank Great. you for letting me share. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Those are really interesting points and questions. Uh, I mean, the space one, wow, that, that's super, super thought-provoking and interesting. I mean, I, I, I assume and I think that there are a battery of uh, pharmaceuticals that one needs to take in space. I mean, I think we all know that, you know, people that go to space have their appendix out already, right? And so they're, they're trying to hedge against uh, certain things that are relatively common here, uh, but obviously would be uh, life-threatening in space. I think antibiotic or um, bacterial infections would be in that category, right? With things that we know how to treat, but if you're in space and don't have access to antibiotics, it, it becomes uh, life-threatening. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there's definitely drugs uh, one, one needs and antibiotics would be at the top of that list. Um, uh, I think a, a, a drug that is micro, gut microbiome sparing would be even better, right? Because uh, the, as I mentioned, the challenge with some antibiotics in our arsenal is that in some people, now it's typically people that are in hospitals, but in some people they, you know, this um, wiping out of the commensal bacteria can lead to secondary infections, um, fungal or bacterial infections. So, um, so I think it's a, a great question and, and, and problem and, and one would need to make, someone needs to make a decision about which uh, drugs, antibiotics go to space. I think the, the second part, yeah, the, the funding, I kind of, hinted at that towards the end, you know, it is a, 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 challenge, a challenge to advance antibiotics, and, and, um, but uh, fortunately there are public-private partnerships and enterprises that have, have been assembled recognizing this problem. Companies have put money in, governments have put money in, and, and trying then to uh, move them forward. I mean, the, the typical path would be from a, a university discovery like this one, the typical path would be uh, a license to a pharmaceutical or biotechnology company, and then you know they're they're now it's in the hands of professionals, and and they would move it forward. I think there's other possibilities though, especially for antibiotics, where uh, you know p potentially even with the government uh, getting it into to phase one, and then really uh, seeing. Um, getting a basic look at the the kind of the pharmacokinetics and efficacy, and and then um, maybe going to a commercial entity after that. So, I think um, also there's all sorts of possibilities for fabomycin. The, the pathway has not been decided. 
I want to just add one more that would potentially allow you to retain ownership uh, because I suspect maybe you have consideration to become an innovator, researcher, entrepreneur. Uh, our platform, Copernic Space, is providing funding through utility NFTs to space endeavors, including as far reaching as financing first private mission to the moon. And I am mentioning it because there is a revolution in sources of funding introduced by tokens, NFTs, blockchain that liberate or extends uh, choices uh, for uh, synergistic with your mission sources of private and public funding. So that's that's another, uh, I would say, uh, opportunity for research as significant as yours. And uh, last question, is Eli Lilly potentially one of the better choices for, for industry partner, for pharmaceutical company as a partner? Um, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't really, I wouldn't be able to say, I mean, di different um, big pharma where Eli Lilly would be considered one have, have been kind of in and out of the antibiotic uh, discovery process over the last 40 or 50 years. And, and it kind of depends on different strategic directions within the company. And I don't know where they're at with that right now. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate this room and thank you, Katarina. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Kiko, did you have a question? Yeah, uh, I was kind of curious. So, like, as you go through um, this process of, uh, you know, discovering, creating um, the mycin drug that you guys created for these gram-negative bacteria, um, was it also in a thought process on developing something that could be uh, made, like, effectively and, and uh, cost-efficient? Because one thing that, like, I, I think is kind of the crux of modern medicine is that sometimes you have a, a much needed um, medicine, antibiotic, what have you, uh, the price tends to be so far out of reach of common folks that a lot of common folks end up losing, you know what I'm saying, faith in the medical industry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. And I think it's, uh, you're kind of breaking up, but I, oh. I got the gist of it. I got the gist of it, which is uh, basically, you know, can can one manufacture this compound at a, a cost, um, a scale, and with cost of goods that would be make it into a reasonably priced drug? And um, also asking about, you know, how how that is maybe not the case with some other drug. Uh, the answer is yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know, when you look into the cost of goods for drugs for what, what I'd call small molecule drugs. So these are organic compounds, which are most all antibiotics and many, many other drugs, is um, the, the, the amazing ability of, of, of chemists, medicinal chemists, process chemists, to come up with really, really efficient synthetic routes to these final products. And actually, the cost of goods is a fraction of the total cost. So, um, that, so it, that would be the, the situation for this compound as well. Uh, now, that changes a little bit if you go to some biological therapies that have, you know, are used in, in other indications, cell-based therapies. Some of those can, the therapy itself can actually be very, very expensive. But for organic compounds, making those on scale can be done very, very efficiently. And so then the, the, what they're priced at, of course, is, is different and, and based on other factors. But the actual cost of goods for the drug uh, will be nominal. Super cool. Thank you.
You're welcome. Um, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, Joyce, Dr. Shah, Denise, do you have questions? Um, I now joined the stage. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. That was wonderful research that you just shared with us. My question from you is about the using of the nanoparticles. And uh, we have a recombination. And I was just wondering, as an exister, because we, we have a use of that, or we might have a use of that in a immunotropy in the future. And I was just wondering if you have further information around that. Yeah, so the, the question about um, nanoparticles, and, and those are used um, to, f to formulate drugs uh, in, in some cases. Uh, one of the challenges, you know, one of the interesting things is that most of our drugs, as I mentioned, are, are organic compounds, meaning they're, you know, carbon-based molecules, and they tend not to be uh, soluble in, in water. And so there's a, a little bit of a, a tension there because ultimately they have to get into circulation. So one of the solutions that has been come up with is to use something like nanoparticles. Um, in some cases, nanoparticles can uh, help solubilize. In some cases, they can... Um, uh, help tar target the, the compounds, say, in certain cancer applications. I would say, you know, the nice thing about, so our, our entry rules, I didn't get into the specifics, but one of the key parts of that is the presence of, of um, uh, what we call an ionizable nitrogen or a primary amine. An amine is a, a, a group that is positively charged at kind of standard pHs, and, and that greatly facilitate solubility in, in water or aqueous solutions. So, um, so you know, the, the, this compound, to answer the question directly, this compound is such that one wouldn't need a, a nanoparticle formulation. Thank you. And is there any side effect that you just uh, came up with? Um, I, I think, you know, right, right now, the, all the, the toxicity profile has looked very promising. The, the work that we've done in mice and some other work that we've done in rats and, and then other kind of cell culture-based assessments. Um, but one doesn't really know until you, uh, you do the, the kind of the toxicity studies that one needs to go into phase one. So I think there's reasons for optimism, but uh, it hasn't been explored to all the way yet. And what's the age? that you clinically you can use it for example in what age is there supposed to be a harm mm, age restriction for the drug um i mean certainly that hasn't been decided yet but I, I think most of these are start out as adult indication and then kind of uh, get assessed in in younger cohorts after that i see thank you so much thank you Hi, Paul. Um, I was curious about the, so you just mentioned the animal studies. I was curious about the timeline to human trials and then perhaps from human trial, from, you know, basically the bench to clinical setting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, in general, it's all related to uh, how many resources can be deployed. I mean, the the as I said, the most straightforward path for any new drug is a, from a, a place like ours, from an academic institution, is a, is a license to a, a company that could be a startup or even better probably for the, the technology would be a license to an existing company, right, that has the resources. So it, it will cost uh, maybe a, a couple million dollars to do the experiments that one needs to do 
to get into the human clinical trial. So, um, but those can go relatively fast. So if, you know, in a situation where one has those resources, you can probably get into a clinical trial on kind of a couple years time frame. And then uh, again, the, the clinical trials, um, if, if one is really pushing on them, the, the, with antibiotics, everything is pretty well understood, what, what one is looking for, and um, there's nice blueprints and pathways. So patients can have access to the drug through, through the trials. And then, um, you know, in some indications, things in, in, are, are, uh, can be granted, drugs can be granted accelerated approval or breakthrough designation if, if you are, uh, have a, a drug for a indication for which there is no good drug. These are typically in oncology, um, but uh, it is possible in other um, diseases as well. So, you know, what might be a five-year process could be kind of shrunk to half of that. Thank you. Who would like to go next? Thank you. Hi. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, this is Joyce. Um, thanks for your presentation, and it's great, exciting work. Um, I was wondering, um, there's increasing evidence that that microbes can, um, you know, it's well known that they can um, transform into L forms or cell wall deficient forms and become latent and then potentially come back later and mm. cause problems. I was wondering if you think this antibiotic I mean, some antibiotics actually enhance the formation of L-forms mm. or cell wall deficient microbes. But do you know about that in this case? Ah, yeah, you. that's a really interesting point and questions. Uh, no, we haven't studied that. Okay, so that would be my uh, short answer uh, to your question. I mean, I, I think, you know, what we have looked at is the bacterial cytal nature of the compound. Um, and also the ability of, to give high doses that um, are, are above the minimum inhibitory concentration. So when one can dose at higher than you need, say 5, 10, 100x higher than is needed, then you have great confidence that uh, you're killing the bacteria quantitatively, so you're killing all of them. Now, the persister uh, phenomenon that you're mentioning uh, is, is I, I think is really fascinating. It, it's a kind of a, an area of research that, man, there's just so much more to learn, I think. Uh, so it would be something to look for in the future, definitely. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, um, thank you for, um, for answering those questions. I have a question. So you you target like you mentioned that um were also in the paper that um amine is like um essential part that you kind of that is targeted are those aren't those like pretty um like broadly used and like is it specific to bacteria or to, um, or could it also target other cell types, including fungi? Because we also have a huge fungi problem, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 The, it's an interesting question. So the, the 
so, so when we developed the entry rules, we were looking for chemical traits that enable drugs, compounds to get into gram-negative bacteria. That, that, that's kind of very specifically what we were looking for. And we came up with three things in the, the N, the T, and the R and entry, uh, the nitrogen, the amine, and then the kind of the, what we call three-dimensionality, so the ability of a compound to be flatter relatively uh, rel rather than um, spherical, and then the rigidity uh, is the R, rotatable bonds. And so a compound that has all of those three traits is, is really uh, predisposed to, to get into gram-negative bacteria. I think the the entry problem is not so acute for gram-positive bacteria or even for fungi. The, the drug development challenges there are are significant, as you're pointing out, but for, for different reasons. So the the um, the so it, it's not to say that the compound would only go into uh, gram-negative bacteria, but the nature of the target, this fatty acid biosynthesis target, is such that, uh, you know, in a best-case scenario, it will only restrict the growth or kill gram-negative bacteria, and if it does go into other cells, it would be innocuous. Mm, yeah, and um, are you, like, when you came up with this compound, it was, um, you know, purely human-based logic, I guess. So uh, how do you feel about the approaches of using machine learning slash kind of AI uh, to find different compounds? Do you yeah. believe in them or do you think it's really hard to tell what the correlations they make? They are really trustworthy and reliable? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's um, another tool, and, and it's a great one, and it's a powerful one, uh, and, and another tool that we have in our arsenal. As I mentioned, it was critical, that tool specifically was critical for us in our development of the entry rules, and so that's really, you know, in, in drug discovery, that's a, a powerful application of machine learning and artificial intelligence is, is giving it big data sets, data sets that we as humans really have a hard time making heads or tails of where we have hundreds of compounds, each with hundreds of chemical features and, and trying to understand what features are common to, to ones that accumulate and ones that don't, right? And, and, and especially when you get into a combination, it needs to be three features or something. So I think that is a, a great role for artificial intelligence and machine learning. The, but that said, the roles are expanding all, all the time. I mean, there are now algorithms that can um, start to predict chemical routes or, or suggest chemical routes to, to compounds, which um, in some cases are competitive with even the best uh, chemists out there. There's um, computational methods to actually discover enzyme inhibitors, so drugs that bind to certain important targets. So all these things are, are tools and, and they you know work to a greater or lesser extent depending on the specific application that there's a that's the, the human element though has never been more important, right? I mean it, it's like every time the tools get better, one needs to know how to use them. Uh, so I think that um, being up on the latest tools is critically, critically important and being able to use them as a scientist is 
is critical to making discoveries um, that are that you know that that can be made rapidly and that are also impactful. Yeah, thank you. And um, was this also like? Do you use the approach also for your cancer-related drug uh, research development? Yeah, yeah. I again, I think it's it's conceptually some of the things are similar. Uh, trying to find compounds that, in that case, have a selectivity for cancer cells over mammalian cells. In some ways, the cancer challenge is even more significant because a, a cancer cell is still as 99.99% similar to the, the human, you know, the non-cancer cell. So um, that, that's it's very, very challenging. And, and I think in that case, computational analysis has been really instrumental in discerning what the differences are in cancer cells relative to normal cells and what, what as, as chemists, one might exploit. So those tools are, are critical. And anytime a new tool comes online, it's, it's a really great day for, it's like, CRISPR or some of the the, the newer uh, structural biology techniques that just can, can really transform and, and enable scientists to do their job faster and better. Um, I know, um, yeah, thank you so much. It's exciting that, um, you know, it's apparently giving us so much new um, possibilities to fight off cancer, germs and so on so yeah thank you for doing this research and Einar um, did you have a question you came on stage yeah hi Katarina um hi Paul um I have a question um this is not my field of work so uh be brutal <laughs> uh, but when it comes to um the, this research, Pavmazine. Um, if I understand this correctly, uh, does it have a tendency to actually uh, relate to nitrogen-related uh, uh, molecular bondings in a different way uh, that we've been seeing earlier um, when it comes to, um, yeah, I don't know if this is the correct way to see it, but you know that we can either recycle um, or we can destroy or we can reuse what we have um, as a chemical uh, compound or normal matter, if I can use that word, in our bodies. Uh, does it work differently when it comes to specific uh, fatty acids uh, uh, containing the some form of nitrogen bonding. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the, the fatty acid biosynthesis pathway in bacteria is really uh, fascinating. And there, you know, there was a thought, which maybe is what you're getting at, that if one inhibited fatty acid biosynthesis, the bacteria could actually get around that by recycling components that they already had, uh, cell wall or, or products of, of those cell wall biosynthesis. So um, until the first FABI inhibitors were developed, that was a question. And then even going into gram-negative bacteria, uh, when we discovered the, f the first version of these a few years ago, it was definitely a question. But now, you know, with these probes and others, that question has been definitively answered that 
Yeah, if you inhibit fatty acid biosynthesis in these bacteria, they will die, right? That they, they cannot bypass that process. Um, they by uptake of, of uh, say, intermediates or by shuttling, de degrading things that they have, it's an essential process. So, yeah, I think it's an important uh, point to bring up. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, uh, Watch Dominion. Um, welcome to the stage. Did you have a question? Yes. Hi, Katerina. Thank you so much for giving me the chance. I have a question regarding the amount of uh, antibiotics being used in factory farms. And I know there is several antibiotic resistant strain of uh, staph bacteria, which is spreading uh, along with other diseases, which are zoonotic in nature, uh, bird flu being other, I, I, even though it's a, viral infection there is because of these filthy conditions we we have approximately 85 billion land animals and approximately i think 80 percent of all the antibiotics produced goes to livestock has there is there any concert concerted effort regarding transitioning from from that practice because uh, i'm wondering if all the 80 percent of the antibiotics being fed to prophylactically to these animals meant for slaughter, then humans are getting that slow dose of antibiotics and we are developing um, antibiotic resistance strains, be, be it for MRSA or VRE. Are yes. we changing our system to yes, a more plant-based system? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question. And uh, absolutely, that, that's uh, uh, really an important consideration. And as the, the caller is mentioning, uh, Antibiotics have been used for years in agricultural industry as a growth promoter, uh, based on the observation that you know when, when you give it, they can they get bigger, faster, um, and so you know more more meat faster. Basically, there, not too long ago though, there uh, I think both uh, the EU and the United States did agree to dramatically curb this. I'm not an expert on this, but I but I know of those agreements are out there, maybe they're being phased in, or maybe they're already in. So that, that you're absolutely right in that it, it, it can and was and did drive um, bacterial resistance. And so uh, that, <laughs> that was recognized pretty quickly as a, a major, major source of that. So uh, it's recognized and, and I think it's, it's been addressed, but um, it, it, it's probably not down to zero. I mean, we still have approximately enormous amount, uh, I guess from some statistics, there were 70 to 80% of ractopamine, which is being administered to these animals prophylactically as you validated. I'm wondering what is the organization which should be looking at? Because I was reading some, some stats that antibiotic resistance could become a silent epidemic in the upcoming decades. Is there oh. any governing body which, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's definitely true. I mean, so, um, I, so, I don't know the the government bodies. I mean, I think the the USDA I know has uh, has been on it and the equivalent in the EU. And like I said, I know they issued resolutions and proclamations to to curb this practice. And and I do think that we're well a ways into it um, in in terms of the time post those proclamations. But like I said, it, I'm not an expert on it. I'd have to to look into it to tell you the specifics. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yep. Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine is doing a lot of 
work regarding raising awareness. And there, I'm not sure if you have watched this documentary. It's called The End of Medicine. And I can put the link in the chat. So thank you. Great. Great. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, um, you know, responsible medicine, you also do research in like re-engineering natural products to make them more efficient. Um, so do, that's really interesting that you went that route. Um, do you want to talk a little bit um, about that? Um, sure. How you are, you know, the quinine, did you do that because of malaria and, um, or was it more for, for other purposes? Yeah, more for other purposes. I mean, what what um, that that thread of our research was, which has been an important component of of a few different discoveries, was that when one's you know people ask me a lot of times how how do you start where where do you start to find a new cancer drug or antibiotic, and the starting points are indeed challenging. And and I would say in the pharmaceutical industry, as I, I mentioned at the beginning. They have collections of millions of, of compounds, and they start literally just screening through them, right? Looking for ones that have some sort of um, uh, hit in in some sort of uh, experiment, maybe a cell death experiment, maybe some kind of enzyme inhibition experiment, and and a lot of universities have have built have bought large compound collections, several hundred thousand or more. The the challenge with those collections is that the the you know, to a chemist, most of the compounds in them tend to be quite simple in their complexity, meaning that they are, they're easy to make. That's why you can get 100,000 of them or millions of them. But the consequence of that is, is they're structurally simple. So um, we got into this area that was mentioned, re-engineering natural products, where we can actually take natural products and, and we can get um, hundreds of grams of these that we isolate or can just purchase and convert them in a very small number of, of chemical steps to, and the natural products, I should say, are, are complex molecules by all the metrics that chemists care about, about ring fusion density and stereogenic centers and things like that. And so we can convert those natural products in, in a series of five or fewer chemical steps to compounds that are equally complex but now are quite different from each other. So we've made over a thousand compounds in this way as a means just to, to get at a starting point, get at structurally complex molecules that can then go into our um, um, starting point experiments. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so the focus was more on the complexity. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, going through a lot of, lot of compounds is kind of a very tr traditional antibiotic, you know, by your started doing that, but then <laughs> the history of that is is quite intriguing, right? Like how in Germany, Bayer and so on, they went through thousands of compounds and didn't find really something effective. And then one a researcher in England, by accident, probably not. It's probably just English um, trying to be very subtle. <laughs> so if I accident discovered then the effective compound, which is kind of going back to the question I had before, but that's a longer discussion if just brute force is really, you know, like machine learning, but it's not pure brute force or, um, yeah, 
Yeah, I think there's... That makes there's, this probably the interesting way to go. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. You know, every every new tool gets layered on the old ones, and the old ones work for a reason, right? Because they're they're great. But as you have new capabilities, it's just smart to, to modernize. Yeah, this, this is such an interesting discussion, and I could probably go on, but um, does anyone have, like, a last question? Because the hour is up in one minute so if anyone has a last question for paul please go ahead um and um yeah please flash your microphone maybe uh, what's what are you working on in the future like uh, related to this project because i guess you could talk about for hours what you're doing for the future <laughs> <laughs> like What's the next step? Are you planning on finding more compounds? Are you checking out for also like you did for your cancer compounds yeah. to go into clinical trials? Yeah, I think all of the above. I mean, it, you know, it, we really want to push push them forward once we make these discoveries and 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 really push them into to, to benefit people. Right, that's that's what we're there to do. So. And that, that's a different challenge than the initial discovery and pulling together a lot of different groups and resources. So that, that's one aspect. But we've also been really taken with this idea of, of microbiome sparing antibiotics. And I, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that the next wave of antibiotics will be ones that are way easier on the patient where you don't get these secondary infections. I think that will make a huge difference. And so we have a few other um, targets that uh, we're excited about and uh, that also we, you know, the compounds that hit those will also be gut microbiome sparing. So uh, I think it's really an exciting, exciting time for this field. Oh yeah, that does, that does really interesting. We had a few rooms with researchers about microbiome in humans and also in forests and so on. I think it's an exciting new um, research area that we are learning a lot about what is, which ones are good, which ones are kind of bad and important. It's, it's really exciting. So, well, maybe <laughs> you come back one day and talk about that. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> because, yeah, it's so much that we still have to learn. Um, because taking antibiotics, it's like a huge fire in the forest, basically, probably right. for the gut. So it's very relatable. And then fungi also play a role, which I find play also really interesting roles. Also in cancer now, came a paper out, how cancer is found and uh, how fungi are found in cancer. So we could talk on and on. So I'll stop here. <laughs> yes, can we please do that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in recolonization of the gut, for example, after antibiotics. Yeah. And if there's any, you know, if there's any, I don't know if there are lingering parts, you know, how viruses can leave little bits around. And, and for example, if somebody's had C. diff and then they're treated and then years back, is there any chance that that would return because yeah. of prior infection? Um, yeah. I mean, I think the the effects, the devastating effects of a, of a you know dysbiosis of the gut microbiome are just. I think we're just starting to recognize. I mean, it's now been linked to uh, colorectal cancer, uh, several other types of cancer, um, all sorts of you know even autism. All sorts of things seem to come back to the gut microbiome. 
certainly secondary infections like you're mentioning, and certainly when you get those, then, I mean, some of those, so, so the recolonization, as I mentioned, now is through a fecal transplant. Um, and which has its own challenges and issues and is not always effective. So I, I think it would be, obviously, it'd be great if you were never in that situation in the first place, right? If you can make a strategic strike instead of a, a carpet bomb. Yes, yes. I, I thought that strategic strike was, that was, that was really an, um, a meaningful and important direction. Yeah. And it's also just speaks to one of the million benefits of breastfeeding and breast milk, you know, being a living resource that it, it does colonize with so many beneficial bacteria and, sure. and I guess, you know, could also be, I don't know, maybe somehow nicer than a fecal transplant. Yeah, somehow, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> can you freeze your own gut microbiome? Maybe that's a little company. Oh my gosh, right. Or something, or you know, it's a severe infection. You can just take your own microbiome again, or your mother's, or your brother's. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be funny. Uh, so not just you know, cord blood. You get the microbiome freezing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, so um, thank you so much for coming. This was such an interesting discussion and we wish you all the best and all the grants for your work it's so important and thank you for doing this work um, and for getting into this science career <laughs> we'll all benefit thank you thanks so much for having we'll me i appreciate benefit. the invitation oh, yeah. <laughs> and um it's not altruistic at all to say we wish you all the grants <laughs> thank you thank you and yeah enjoy the rest of your day and thank you everyone for coming asking questions participating if you like discussions like this follow the club i think you then get um notifications if you opt uh, to get them and we'll have some more uh, rooms um this week about um how one hour in nature decreases amygdala activity and dr tarduno the origin of the inner core structure of earth um a little bit different and then uh, yeah next week we'll have astrobiologist um talking about the discovery of origins of life um very easy <laughs> questions to solve so um, yeah, thank you for being here, Paul, for participating. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I hope we'll hear you back one day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>